0: As those those of you who were here on Tuesday or uh, Saturday know, um, I've been invited here into Albuquerque. um, And when I asked what theme to focus on out of multiple possible themes, the request was to actually explore the nature of our practice in relationship to some of the larger social realities of our times. We sometimes call this engaged practice, or socially engaged practice. And last time, I gave an overview, in a sense, uh, talking about the way that we could understand um, through one framework, very traditional, that of uh, traditional practice being divided into the cultivation of wisdom, meditation, And acting ethically bringing it out into the world and into our relationships and I interpreted the whole intention of engaged practice in those three ways it's very much a way that one can understand that so I talked for example in terms of wisdom one of the themes I brought out last time was the way in which uh, we could interpret our times and particularly the last months and the coming period as an important chance to face the collective shadow. We talked about that last time and tried to clarify some of the aspects of what the collective shadow is that in some ways uh, some of those who have power now really represent a, a very strong manifestation of what in Buddhist language is talked about as the three root issues or problems that is greed, hatred and delusion and we're seeing, you know, and so that is coming up in many ways in our face and so it's a chance to work with that in all the manifestations that we see that, you know, that in many ways uh, the issues have always been there but it's a little bit more out front now you know, issues of the greed of the economic system, or the way that uh, uh, racism is still very much present, you know, and uh, ways that there are, are deliberately cultivated antagonisms, you know, pretty clearly to divide and conquer, you know, in my, in my view at least. Um, and the way that there is a uh, massive delusion, probably most obviously in terms of climate issues. You know, there's just, you know, hard to say what it is. It, seemed, it seems to be delusion, but it could, you know, maybe be explained other ways. <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, it's, it's mystifying to some people, right? I mean, it's just like, as I mentioned, I think a week ago, don't these people have children or grandchildren? Some of them, right? I mean, it's kind of horrifying in many ways. And so, uh, and then we continued on Saturday uh, with some more specific experiential work and themes that were brought out. Um, in particular, we did a practice series of practices culminating in what's called the Truth mandala practice developed by Joanna Macy, which really opens up in many ways some of the deeper unconscious territory <clears throat> in ways that help us to access what's there and uh often it helps one to act more more clearly and then I brought out I started to bring out more specific themes and practices related to uh, engage practice, uh, particularly how do we work skillfully with views views opinions, positions in particular attachment to views positions opinions. <laughs> Um, And then also brought out the theme of empathy, which is a really crucial theme of our times, I believe. And so that really, in a way, uh, opened up. uh, Once we had an overview of the territory, it opened up a way that we could continue to clarify practices and principles for what we might call engaged practice. And if we were doing a six-month training six-month inquiry together, we would develop a number of different capacities. Maybe we'd work with empathy in more depth. We'd work with speech practice more skillfully. We'd work to be better able to work with conflict, inner or outer conflict. We'd become uh, better able to look at the world through Dharma eyes. We'd emphasize themes like working with difficult emotions. We'd look at uh, you know, ways that we could bring our action in and have it be more skillful. We'd do a lot of different things that we would, uh, that we would uh, do together. So I wanted tonight, I think, to bring, to bring up a very uh, powerful principle of not just engaged practice, I think, but all aspects of our practice. And it's a very interesting principle that's been one of my favorites for some time. And we can talk about it in different ways. I have found myself using language and talking about the combination of being deeply committed, of having committed action while having non-attachment to outcome. Don't try to think that out too much. (laughs) It's paradoxical, right? And I'll explore some of that aspect of paradox. And um, in some ways it can look paradoxical. I don't think it is when we go deeply into it. And and there's a very ordinary English phrase that I think expresses something close to this, which is that do continually your best and let the chips fall where they may. So there's something about being very full with one's commitment and then, you know, letting things take their course. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, it's a very powerful, uh, beautiful principle that I think is, can really inform our practice uh, on the cushion, our formal practice, and also very much our practice off the cushion in our relationships in our work in our social action so that's my theme i'm going to particularly uh, talk a little bit about the different ways that this uh, principle manifests across multiple spiritual traditions and then i want to talk about some of the ways that we actually concretely practice with it that's particularly by noticing guess what when we get attached to outcome and or when somehow our action is not full or committed. Those are the two ways that we, as it were, miss the point. We we don't follow the principle. And then I'm going to, you know, in the last part, talk about what this looks like. And I'll I'll tell stories along the way. What this um, way of living, really, what this practice uh, looks like when it's mature. That's assuming I know something about what it looks like when it's mature.
1: Okay,
0: we'll leave that open. <laughs> but I'll also refer to what other people say and think about this. And I, I thought I'd start with a story, uh, that, uh, which is when this principle really came into my consciousness. And as some of you know, I lived for four years in Kentucky, as a teacher at the University of Kentucky. And I was um, in the philosophy department, and I remember there was one, you know, quite often, I would teach our introductory ethics class. Now, now this requires a little bit of background. Um, Some years before I arrived, when they were negotiating liberal arts requirements at the University of Kentucky, somehow, probably with a lot of skillful maneuvering by the philosophy department, they, uh, the, the, the people in charge declared that one could meet a basic liberal arts requirement by either taking a philosophy class or taking a math class. <laughs> Now, this ensured, this probably was the reason for me being hired in the first place, but this ensured the philosophy department to grow big. (laughs) Because there was a great need for people to teach, particularly these introductory classes. So here it was, and I had an evening introductory class in ethics. And this particular class was in the fall. And I had a very large percentage of the class were football players. Okay, so this is the fall. It's an evening class. You know what they've done Mm -hmm. up until the time that they come to my class. Right? They have um, probably gone to a class or two early in the morning. And then they've maybe had seven hours of practice. Mm -hmm. And then they've eaten a really big meal. And then they come to my
1: class.
0: (laughs) This was a training ground for committed action, non-attachment to outcome. (laughs) Because um, what they really wanted to do, of course, was what? Sleep. Okay. The second best option, if they couldn't sleep, was to just tell jokes among each other while the class was going on. Okay, so there I am. I'm, I'm a young teacher. I don't, don't look so much older than them, particularly. I, I actually had to grow a beard to look more authoritative <laughs> when I was there. And so there I am. And how should I say, it's not going as I wanted it to go. <laughs> and I'm getting frustrated and struggling a little bit. And maybe a third of the way through the class, I remember the principle which I had read about in uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu tradition, and also a version of it in Chuangsu in the the Chinese tradition. In the uh, Bhagavad Gita, it's called the tradition of action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. This is actually the animating principle for Gandhi. Uh, Action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. You see, I think I have a a quote there. Um, This is from the Bhagavad Gita. Steadfast in the way. Listen to this as an expression of this principle. Steadfast in the way, without attachment, do your work. The same in success and misfortune, this evenness, that is discipline. So I remembered that teaching. And I remembered uh, the teachings of Chuang Tzu, he taught a way of action that was called wu-wei. Some of you know, non-action is the usual usual translation, based on inner stillness. So I was not innerly still during that teaching. And here's what Chuang Tzu said, the non-action of the wise person is not inaction, it is not studied. And here's here's the point, it is not shaken by anything. So that inner stillness is guides action and can be there. So I remembered these and I decided that I didn't know as it were what the hell or whatever whatever the word would be what is going to happen in this class but I'm going to do my best and let things be as they are and it re- I really relaxed the rest of the time you could imagine and I I often didn't have a sense whether I was succeeding or not or what was happening and the football players you know they were still kind of doing their thing a lot of the the time, even with my strong attempts at discipline, which were, I'm joking a little bit about that anyway so um, so I continue with that, and something really registered it really felt like I was uh, learning something about a very important principle, you know, and I didn't mention the beginning, but this principle is really connected with equanimity it's very closely connected with equanimity as we study it in uh, Buddhist practice were in other traditions and then you know then it was very interesting um, I was just saying I you know I don't know quite what happened and at the end of the semester several of the football players came up to me and said I've never learned as much in your class and in, in as in your class as I have in any other class. No, that wasn't quite good grammar, yeah, but right. <laughs> <laughs> you get the point. You said you know, I've learned more in your class than in any other class. That's right. Okay. So um, and I said, Whoa, this principle not only gives inner ease, but it has the possibility even of success. <laughs> and so uh, it made a big impression, you know, to work with that. And I've Try to stay with that, you know, and I've also seen the way it manifests in other, you know, we find it in other traditions. Some of you probably know the uh, book of Job from the Hebrew Bible, right? You know, Job is a, a figure who um, is said to have a lot of faith, but his faith is tested, you know, by a series of negative events, you know, his, let's see, he... Uh, all of his children die. he loses his prosperity and and health as well as his good reputation. Does he still have his faith? I think it's pointing in the same way you know, in a, in a somewhat of a seer, severe manner right or there's a very clear teaching in the Buddhist tradition uh, teaching that you probably know called sometimes called the eight worldly winds you know the loka dhamma and How many of you know this teaching? Very powerful teaching. This is about how we tend to get caught in a series of eight pairs. And here they are. Pleasure and pain. We get caught on one or both of them. Gain and loss. Fame and disrepute. Praise and blame. And so that particular teaching points us, this is really a, you know, a little bit in advance, if we want to work with non-attachment outcome, we're going to be studying pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And it's a very powerful way to practice in daily life or with any external action because we just can track those and track when we get caught in them. And I think they're very, very powerful in our lives. I remember once, uh, you know, another story. um, I had organized, along with several people, a summer institute in Engaged Buddhism for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in in California. Had about a hundred people came. And we thought we were doing really well. It was six days. And about midway through, we thought we'd do an evaluation just to see how things were go- going, seeing whether we, you know, kind of a, a minimal brief evaluation. And I think about 90% were positive positive. and about 10% were a little bit grumbly and made some suggestions. And I know my own mind, as well as that of all the organizers, we went right into the negative ones and we lost perspective, right? Has anyone ever done that? You know, it's very common, isn't it? Right. We we have I don't know we have this uh, kind of tendency. What's it called? Uh, negativity bias by the recent psychologists. Like like we we go to the negative, and we don't we, we don't go to appreciation so much. So it's a lot. You know, again, we could look at that on a lot of different levels. But this is this is all caught up with this teaching. I thought I'd just read one more expression of the teaching. This is, is from Gandhi you know based on the Gita, the unmistakable teaching of the Gita is that one who gives up action fails. so you have to act right You have to keep acting. One who gives up only the reward rises. That's the, the teaching of giving up the fruit of the action or the whether you have success or not. But renunciation of fruit in no way means indifference to the result. That's kind of getting into the paradox, right? Um, One who is without desire for the result and yet wholly engrossed in the due fulfillment of the task is said to have renounced the fruits of the actions. You have to get in all the details, try to have as much success as you can, but it's almost like you do that and then you you let something go, right? You let some result go. T.S. Eliot said, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. Another expression of it. Ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. So you see how this is such a powerful principle. So going on with Gandhi, one who is ever brooding over result often loses nerve in the performance of one's duty. So he's pointing to the way that when you really get attached to outcome, all sorts of distortions occur. One becomes impatient and then gives vent to anger and begins to do unworthy things. One jumps from action to action never remaining faithful to any. When there is desire, when there is no desire for fruit, there is no temptation for untruth or violence. Take any instance of untruth or violence, and it will be found that at its back was the desire to attain the cherished end. So he's really meaning attachment. Attachment to that. <clears throat> now, interestingly, our meditation also follows this principle when you think about it. And we can have distortions of meditation In the same two ways in other words we sit and depends what kind of practice we're doing but we often sit and we presumably are open to whatever develops right and we often have this openness especially if you do a retreat that you sit and sometimes it's a so-called good sitting, sometimes you're concentrated, sometimes it's a so-called bad sitting. Of course, one wants to improve, but there is a way in which, again, this is probably particularly the case in retreats where people have paid good money and they're there and they're there for results, aren't they? Right? And so, but there's something that's really about, that points to the integrity of our meditative practice, that we totally do our best, and then we let things be as they are, and often we don't know what will happen. And often there's some degree of newness. But you see, this principle is also connected with an openness to something new. Not just going through the familiar, the predictable, you know, the habitual, right? So... There's a way in which our practice is very much, we do our best and then we let it be what it is. You know? And I know when I first started meditating, that didn't work for me. And I think I had always, maybe see if this is true of you, I had I'd always been a so-called good student. And it was very confusing doing meditation. Because how was how are people going to know that I was a good student? <laughs> how do we know here who's really doing good meditation and who's not? <laughs> right? You know. You know. Every people have their you know eyes closed. You know. You know. People meditate. I mean, you can tell you're a good teacher if someone asked you a good uh, meditator. If you someone asked you to start teaching, that's I mean, it's, that you know. But I was beginning. I was far from doing that. So. I got really confused and, um, you know, I figured in my own mind, the only way I could really seem to be a good meditator was if I sat for a really long time, this was on retreats, and stayed up late at night. Then I thought people would surely see that I was a good meditator. <laughs> Even though my own mentor, who I, th- who I knew as a very wise being, Larry Rosenberg, some of you may know his work, and Larry uh, did not sit for a long time and did not stay a plate. Anyway, you, this is the anguish of the young, perhaps male, competitive meditator. <laughs> so there we are. So eventually, I think I learned the principle. You know, I, th- I mean, I won't tell you the, how I learned that, but it was basically through suffering, <laughs> as, <laughs> as you could imagine. right? And so it's a very it's a very crucial principle and so you can look in your own practice to what extent are you falling short in one of the two ways either being attached to outcome in some way you know who are sometimes this, you know people experience this by sitting for a little while maybe just on a daily basis and it doesn't seem to be going well and you, and one just says it's not going to go well I quit <laughs> does anyone ever do that <laughs> okay, I won't I'm kidding. Yes. but very common, and and yet sometimes we know if you would actually sit through that mind being a little bit restless, things often settle down, right? So we can find ourselves having distortions by uh, wanting certain outcomes, or perhaps by not really being committed to our practice, right? Those are very clear. So this principle is a beautiful one for guiding our our formal meditative practice. And so again, what what do we do with this principle, whether it's in our meditation practice or our relationships or our work or our social action? We look for where we get attached to outcome and we look for where our action is not full. You know, and we can work with the eight worldly wins in terms of the first one. To what extent am I attached to having things be- go the way I want? You know, at the upcoming board meeting. <laughs> <laughs> or other meetings, or in something I do. And I think, I think, um, I think this is something really good to look at. I think, I know for myself, still after many years, I get attached to outcome or I think maybe there's something about, you know, I I learned this being in other countries, something maybe about being a a certain kind of American that we just think things are going to work smoothly. You know, maybe with the technology. Try this principle when your computer is not working. Mm -hmm. Or something like that. Um, And so we can look to where we get... uh, where we get caught, we can look at gain and loss, we can look at how we're interested in looking good, having a certain image of ourselves hold sway. These are the ways we can work with this principle. Very, very uh, clear, very, very clearly applicable to daily life in all sorts of ways. When am I doing things to get a certain image from someone else? When am I trying to have this or that outcome? You know, and, um, you know, we can explore that. We can explore where that comes from. We can do inquiry into our attachments to outcome in all these various ways. And we can also, you know, it might also be the case where, I, you know, I want to take credit for an outcome, right? All, all these ways that I want to own an outcome. So it's a very, it's a beautiful principle that can guide our practice in so many ways. And then we can also, You know, um, again, not have our action be full. Not have that sense of commitment in whatever we're doing. Again, whether it's our work, a relationship, or social action. Somehow we need this way to stay with, really be deeply committed to our practice. You know, and again, it's not just a formal practice, but of course, but to having the principles of mindfulness and compassion and Equanimity and so forth be there in all the moments of our lives, you know. Our practice points towards the kind of fullness that I think is bred out by this principle. <clears throat> so I thought I'd mention a few expressions of this principle when there is relative maturity, and and then we'll have then we'll open up and have some discussion. <clears throat> so some ways that. the um, some ways that this principle manifests, this principle of what i'm calling committed action non-attachment outcome what does it look like when it's mature i think there's a lot of attention to process and even appreciating the process appreciating the journey we're less focused on the end and maybe more on the means you know there's a way that we appreciate the journey Without getting preoccupied about where we're going, right? And that's again, I find that goes a lot against a lot of our conditioning, where we just want to get somewhere, or um, we just want to have something done, and we may not appreciate the process. I think it's it's one way that we can look out for for this. Um, you know, it's You know, sometimes we find this with athletes, where You know, because very applicable with with athletes who might really actually appreciate the process of some of a big game and just appreciate the competition and not be totally hung up on the outcome. You see that sometimes, you know, you see that, you know, the the main sport that I watch is professional basketball. And it's particularly a good time now because I, I live like just a few miles from where the Golden State Warriors play. So, anyway, anyone here follow sports? Follow that? Anyway, not too many. that's <laughs> okay. Anyway, so that that just that's a um, unknown reference. But but in any case, but one one finds it and very it's a very interesting team. Follow it. You know what their four principles are? Mindfulness, joy, compassion, and competition. They have to kind of throw in the last one. <laughs> Anyway, but, but, you know, we know if you so in certain kinds of athletics, there just, there's a, there's a joy from having participated fully independent of the outcome that is expressing this principle. And we may know that in certain parts of our lives where, you know, I, I experienced that on retreats where there is, I have a sense that I've had a fullness of effort, whatever happened, you know, and maybe we know that in a lot of our activities, we have that sense of joy from the fullness. Of manifestation, and we actually appreciate the details even without knowing the outcome. If there, you know, in some um, situations there may, there may be a clear outcome, you know, and, and maybe others less less so. And there, you know, there is another principle, is that I think when we follow or another ast- another dimension of this principle, is that when we follow this principle in a sense. There can't really be failure. We may not achieve the outcome we want, but there may be something else happening. you know in the, uh, the book "The Engaged Spiritual Life," I did a lot of interviews with um, spiritually grounded uh, social activists. And one of the ones persons I think I interviewed twice was uh, Dr. Uh, Arya Ratney from Sri Lanka who founded the uh, Sarvodaya movement. They actually It's probably the fullest expression of Buddhist engagement in history. In Sri Lanka, they had 15,000 local chapters where they brought together Buddhist practice with meeting the needs of the villages, basically. And I interviewed him. He had been working with this project since 1958. He said this, When I do something with good intentions and I quote-unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that quote unquote failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment or renunciation. Right? I'm sure a lot of us live like that, right? Um, in learning to accept failure in a sense, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason which is always beneficial to me. Another dimension of this principle of committed action, non attachment outcome, when it's mature, is I think a deep sense of integrity. You know, and integrity means different things. Uh, one of the core meanings is sort of a, a moral consistency or a, sometimes particularly honesty. And another meaning is that of wholeness. You know, that like an int- the word integer, you know, it's a whole number. And there's a sense of wholeness, that, that we we act the same way whatever the outcome is, whether things are going well or poorly. We stay with our guiding compass, we might say, you know. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a phrase, he said, um, Integrity is, let's see what it is. Uh, Integrity is doing the right thing, even when no one is watching. We could probably add to that, even when things aren't going well. Okay. Integrity is doing the right thing. Um, I found a quote from uh, Warren Buffett. Okay. In looking for people to hire, you look for three qualities, integrity, intelligence and energy. If they don't have the first, The other two will kill you. (laughs) And there's there's a a nice Tibetan phrase that I like a lot, which is also very similar to this. It's this principle. It's pointing to how, if you have depth of practice, it doesn't matter whether things are going quote unquote well or poorly and, and this, this is like a, a folk saying it goes like this when the sun shines and my belly is full I look like a Dharma practitioner
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, as we, but it is when difficulties arise that my faults are exposed <laughs> so these are all manifestations there is there another very uh, powerful way of saying this that I found from some of the late work of W.E.B. Du Bois, the African-American founder of the NAACP and activist and writer and so forth. And I think I may, I think I may have mentioned this on Saturday, but he um, decided to write a novel when he was 89. Actually, not just one novel, but three novels. And he completed them. And um, there's, there's a, a series of questions which I think he said he had lived with much of his life which are really related to this principle. There are four almost like koans or guiding questions. How does integrity face oppression? <clears throat> what does in- honesty do in the face of deception? What does decency do in the face of insult? And how does virtue meet brute force? I think This is all about that sense of commitment to one's deeper values even if things are hard even if things are hard outwardly or inwardly powerful questions aren't they mm-hmm. to live by yeah. <clears throat> so I think integrity is one of the qualities of this principle when it's mature another one I think is being aware of causes and conditions this is more the wisdom dimension so there's a sense in which one can know the causes and conditions and know that certain causes and conditions will lead to my action being quote-unquote successful. And if that the right causes and conditions aren't there, it won't be. But it still may be very important to act. You know, especially true in terms of social action. And this is from uh, this is from Thich Nhat Han. He talked about, you know, because he worked in Vietnam for many years, and, you know, eventually there was not the quote-unquote success that he wanted to. You know, the the uh, North took over, right? And he had to be in exile. But he said this, the conditions for success in terms of a political victory were not present for the Buddhist movement in Vietnam. Yet he did not regret the years of effort. He said... The success of a nonviolent struggle can be measured only in terms of the love and nonviolence attained, not whether a political victory was achieved. So he had a pretty clear sense of both the rightness of the action and that the causes and conditions did not permit the so called victory. So there's a very clear uh, understanding of causes and conditions. And what that sometimes permits is a very long-term perspective. You know, that one has the long haul in mind, particularly again with social action, but it might be something very personal, you know. uh, You know, if there's some really difficult family situation, that might be, one might really have a very long-term perspective. Difficult relationship. Okay, this is (laughs) long-term. Right, not going to have what I want next week or next year. <clears throat> um, Dr. Arya Ratni in Sri Lanka, in trying to help the civil war, said, We have to have a 500 year perspective for our work. He, he said, You know, we look at the causes, uh, you know. British colonialism and the divide and conquer and all that and we look at you know this was hundreds of years in the making you know and we need you know so he has a plan where you know we have okay the uh, you know the first 10 years we try to get to know each other better you the know, people like the Tamils and the, the Buddhists and so forth and then you know but you know healing and learning takes time so we have a 500 year plan so it's that long perspective, that long haul. <clears throat> and there's something also about recognizing that change is mysterious. The changes that we might want to occur. Again, all, sometimes we can see the cause and conditions, sometimes we don't. And things happen mysteriously. Internal changes happen mysteriously. Things happen mysteriously in our communities. And it's very, very obvious that things happen sometimes mysteriously without us really knowing how things change or even even what the uh, result of our actions are. Um, you know, I think of who would have predicted the end of apartheid or the fall of the Berlin Wall. And sometimes things happen mysteriously or, or unknown. There's a very interesting story that for me illustrates this really beautifully. This is a story of uh, that I heard from Daniel Ellsberg, who, who actually do you know Daniel Ellsberg who leaked the Pentagon Papers and he actually lives uh, just about a mile from me, so I actually uh, get to see him, you know, you know, from time to time, and he told the story of um, when he was uh, <clears throat> when he was working. Uh, for the Rand Corporation on nuclear weapons, and he was um, in Japan, and actually in in Tokyo, and he had a little bit of time to uh, uh, to go to Kyoto, and he had uh, he had read Jack Kerouac's The Dharma Bums, <laughs> uh, which featured Gary Snyder. And Gary Snyder had talked about going to this temple in uh, Kyoto, a Zen, a Zen temple. And he went there. And uh, Gary Snyder actually happened to be living there. And they met. They met at the temple. And then they went and hung out at a bar.
1: <laughs>
0: was kind of, that was kind of Gary Snyder's style of Zen, I guess. <laughs> but... Um, They had a very long talk, talked about all sorts of things, and nine years later, when uh, Daniel Ellsberg was wondering whether to release the Pentagon Papers, the secret history of the Vietnam War, he remembered that encounter with Gary Snyder, and it played a significant role in him releasing the Pentagon Papers. We don't know exactly what the results of our actions are. If we presume that they aren't any, we may be wrong. That's quite a story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Right? So, change is mysterious, and maybe I'll just mention two more qualities, and and then end. Um, Obviously, a core quality related to this principle is being able to make it through difficult situations. You know, to be able to keep one center when things are difficult, whether personally, or socially, or both, or in a community, how do you keep your center? right? Do, do the difficult circumstances lead one to give up this principle? Or gets, one gets knocked around by the difficulty? So again, that, that would be part of the training. We can train very much in that in our formal practice. And there is a, um, there's a beautiful passage from uh, Vaclav Havel from Czechoslovakia you know who went through all sorts of difficult times under the communist regimes and he talked about a quality of hope which was kind of a mature hope you're know, not a hope for this or that to happen but something else and this is what he this is what he said he said it's not optimism It's not the optimism that this will happen. So listen for this principle in the way that I've been discussing, in the way he talks about hope. The kind of hope I often think about, and especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, where you spend a lot of time, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. It is a dimension of the soul, and it is not essentially dependence on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, regardless of how it turns out." That's it, right? So that's again links with integrity and some of the other themes. Let me close with uh, a wonderful passage that expresses this actually from an interview with uh, uh, Vandana Shiva. People know who she is? Mm -hmm. You know, who is uh, from from India and a uh, environmental activist I think training as a physicist I believe, Mm -hmm. her initial training and written a lot of books and um, this is this was an interview I'll, I'll end with this and we can open things up uh, interviewer let me wrap up with a personal question every time I've heard you speak or met you you've had so much energy not only intellectual energy but also personal or spiritual energy I'm just wondering what keeps you so alive <clears throat> okay. and she's going to basically say I adhere to this principle um, <laughs> that's what you, so listen for that Well, it's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged, but this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness no matter how tough the situation. Mm -hmm. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do. That's her language. Because these are not in my hands. The context is not in your control. But your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. That's her language for for the principle. You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them. But then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. We have about 15 minutes if anyone has a reflection, comment, question, short story. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? It was, uh, it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, uh, kind of almost like Dharma action principle. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. One of my uh, favorite statements of Václav Havel who's a hero of mine. My- is that a person walking a tightrope is not full of hope.
0: And, um, could you interpret that? <laughs> well, I,
2: I, I think that, that it speaks to, to um, mindfulness. I mean, yeah. you have you're walking a tightrope, you have to pay, pay full attention to what you're doing.
0: Yeah, so it's more like that fullness of action without attachment to outcome. It's not... One's not thinking of the, oh, I might fall. One's just right there, right? That's right. Yeah, that's the idea. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm not thinking about
3: getting
0: to the end of the rope either.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's <where laughs> I'm right. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the tie-ropper is not thinking, oh, I can't wait till I finish this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: the
0: moment one says that, uh, kaboom. You're yeah, ground. you're off. You're
2: finished.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's very down to earth. I think we'd find it probably when we look to almost any discipline, you know, like tightrope walking, or probably even some something like art, right? Yes. Yes. I have to have a sense. It's really being deeply involved with the process, mm-hmm. right? And fullness of letting one be taken away by the process, right? So creative enterprises, meditation. Uh, Any action, so that's Mm. really it's quite a unifying principle, isn't it? It's one way of one way of uh, focusing on it. Other thoughts, questions, maybe again sharing, you know, maybe from your own, you know, how much does that make sense of, you know, like Janice, you're an artist, and does it make sense?
1: Yeah,
3: I was just thinking um, too that. that intensity in the moment of what you're doing yeah. um, doesn't guarantee what an outcome is. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that you would ever get a good outcome without that. You might not That's get a great it. point, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. kind of the ingredients, not that you can count on it always.
0: Yeah, I mean, you for an artist or something, you wouldn't get the outcome you wanted. Now, if you were narrowly trying to get, you know, like I'm trying to... Um, get, you know, this agenda item agreed upon at the meeting, right? That I could get done without really engaging the process, right? Yeah. Yeah, I could have attachment to that outcome and not necessarily focus on process and, you know, whether it could be manipulative or controlling or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would get what I wanted, but it would be, in the long run, it's going to be hollow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Long one may take
2: a while, but yeah, yeah.
1: I think that outcome can also be there's one uh, layer of looking at it which is kind of on top of going deep inside of it and thinking, trying to find faith in the meaning of something actually really super it's a very superficial thing, but I think it's quite. Uh, reinforcing also a failure or of having faith in failure, which is that in that failure, aside from becoming uh, a better practitioner or something yeah. like that, you actually are seeing very practically something that you can you can actually apply to the next step or the, the, the that, next that's, attempt. That's right. Yeah. you're you're going to do that again at a practical level. You can actually use the failure.
0: Yeah, that's that, that, that. Yeah, that's what that from, that's what Dr. Ari Rotney was saying, wasn't it? You know, he was saying I, there's no such thing as failure for me in a deep sense. You know, another way of saying that is I am most deeply committed to learning. Right, right. It's learning. That's, yeah. that's a simple way to say it. I'm most deeply committed to learning rather than this or that going the way I want it in the you short run. That, that you're always going to succeed. At. Yeah, i if, <laughs> no, if I'm interested yeah. in learning. I always succeed. that's yeah that's beautiful isn't it mm-hmm. yeah. It,
1: it's a little hard to do that politically.
0: It's hard to do this in every sphere.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. But but politically, um, yeah yeah. Do you want to say more? Well, you know, when Bernie didn't get the nomination, I yeah.
3: Yeah. I couldn't believe that everyone didn't know how wonderful he was and what a chance we had yeah and so that that was really that was really hard
0: yeah yeah, yeah. and for working with this principle doesn't mean that that there's no devastation or that there's mm-hmm. no ups and downs but it's really saying can I can I take my participation in the Sanders campaign as a deep practice and you know, and for a lot of people, maybe this was their, I'm not saying this is true for you, but for a lot of people, especially younger people, it's their first time in. Right? And they, they may be devastated, but again, if we take it as learning, if you have someone guiding them and saying, all right, if you want to be in this for the long haul, um, here's what we need, here's the way you need to work with the situation, right? But yeah, um, so for people who don't have a sense of practice or this principle, Going to be the eight worldly winds, aren't they? Yeah. <clears throat> and not to say at all that this is easy. I mean, I may give this talk and have something arise later t- tonight or tomorrow that says, "All right, Donald, remember the talk." <laughs> I think I, I yeah, yeah. So.
1: I could I could tell a story. Okay. A story? Okay. So um, there are these um, signs. That the friend, the Quaker uh, is it's the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Yeah. So it's in Washington D.C. It's a Quaker lobbying organization, and it's just wonderful. You know, there's actually people there lobbying for peace and justice and social issues. Yeah. And um, so they, um, after the election and then into January, I guess they um, they created this sign and it's a big blue sign and it says, uh, love thy neighbor, no exceptions. Mm-hmm. And it actually seems to have a hashtag somewhere, I it. Yeah. make it modern or something. Yeah. Hashtag love thy neighbor or something. So, a bunch of us like loved the sign, we saw pictures, you know, and I have CNL sending it out there. So, I bought 50 of them, yeah. with the understanding I already knew like 30 people wanted to buy them. And so then I would kind of, you know, then I was going around Quakers and Unitarians and various people selling them, et cetera. So, of course, I have one. I have it in front of my house. I have it right out there. And every day when I drive out of my driveway, I see this sign. Yeah. And literally, sometimes I say, oh, my God, I'm screwed. It's like, I have to do this now.
0: That's a beautiful. You know, I was just thinking that uh, you know how do we how do we put this into practice? One way is just to remember the principle, maybe reflect on it for five minutes at the beginning of every day. But way better to have it, just a sign. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: crazy thing is, I thought the sign was for the other people. <laughs> right, I put it out it's a great story. To make it of how we all should be. Yeah. That was my
0: intention. I, having having totally mastered this principle, will now share it with the world. (laughs) 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 But seriously, we need something equivalent because that's really great because that's, you know, I mean, this is why the Tibetans had tankas with messages, but we need something that we you know, how do you work with, how do you get reminded, remember? (laughs) The basic problem of our practice in daily life is not that mindfulness is hard or even that loving kindness is hard to access not true. The hard thing about daily life practice it's hard to remember to go there. That's what's hard. You know we we you know and so we have to have, maybe we have signs up I guess at a certain point we just say oh yeah we wouldn't, but that that's a great idea if you put a sign up but you know concretely you could just put a little piece of paper Maybe if you, if you like my phrasing can, or make up your other phrase, your own phrasing, committed action, non-attachment outcome, put a piece of paper, put it on your refrigerator for a week. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at it yeah. right And mm-hmm. something like that. We need we, that's the way to make you know try it out. try it out for a week. And that's the way to see if you want to work with a principle like this.
2: Anyway. And uh, your neighbor uh, Daniel Ellsberg. Said that this is a number of years ago. I don't know if he still does it, but he had a picture of Edward Teller uh, on his refrigerator.
0: Yeah, I haven't heard that story. Uh, Edward Teller was what the so-called father of the H bomb. That's
2: right. I should, should have said that. Yeah. And he actually said when he was telling I was up with Lama once. He was there with Ramdas. It's quite a pair. Um, <laughs> yeah. That. Uh, um, one time he was getting on a plane and he looked and at the line and Edward Teller was in the same line. Oh Well,
0: yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Maybe time for one more if we, anyone have a question, story, reflection. You know, maybe thinking of some way that this principle worked for you or something like it. <clears throat> What I like is that it really clearly is good guidance for formal meditation and so it's almost good guidance for everything. (coughs) Good doesn't mean easy. It's challenging for sure. Particularly when pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, uh, what was the fourth one? Uh, Praise and blame. Yeah, praise and blame. Yeah, for some of us, praise and blame is the biggest. Praise, mm-hmm. praise and blame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe, again, one more? Anyone want to... Um, do you have something? No, okay. Yeah, um, Janice.
3: Um, I had um, an artist friend who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Mm. And so she had a very <clears throat> short... Window and she had been sort of. She's an amazing. Can
0: everyone hear okay? Okay. Mm
3: -hmm. Quite, she was quite an amazing artist, but she got a lot of rejections along the way, which is you know part of the deal. And uh, it disturbed her a great deal over her lifetime, and I kind of witnessed her suffering from that. So she she got this information about the length of her life was going to be short, and she. Hired someone to help her. She made this piece, and she had this feeling. I think that she was going to, This was going to be her last, you know, song in a way. And um, so she worked intently on it, and it was displayed. And I went with her, and she said to me, "I have to tell you, this was such a gift to me." She said, "I have to tell you." that I am so fully um, this piece is so fully what I want it to be that I don't care what happens from mm. here.
0: Well, this piece is so fully the way I want it to be that I don't care what happens. Yeah, I don't yeah. care.
3: And I don't care what people think. It was and I don't she, care what people think and you know. Yeah, and it was in a pla- it was put in a place um, where a big sculpture park, and then they do do a first first play. You know, they do a big deal about judging them. But she said to me, um, "I don't, I don't care from here." And she said it in this really laughing, bubbly sort of way.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, I just something switched for me in that, mm-hmm. which is, boy, that's where it lies. Mm-hmm. That's where the joy lies. Is yourself. You have.
0: I think think what you're, you may be pointing to, she didn't put this in language, but I think when we embody that fullness, in a way, when we don't have attachment to the outcome and aren't looking there, we step out of time, and in a way we enter the timeless. We enter the timeless, and there's some way that that touches our depths, and there's a, a resting there, okay. so that's, that, that, that's that's great. That really helps to really bring in even further some of the depth dimensions of this of this principle. That again, because one's not preoccupied with the outcome, it goes into the timeless. Yeah, the time, you know, when when the it's well developed. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think meditation touches. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think I think when one, what I was just saying would apply, really, for any place where that principle is embodied fully. Meditation. No, yeah,
3: what I meant is the timeless. What? I think that meditation touches on the timeless when you're on retreat.
0: It can. Yeah. Um, I think. Marine. I think what I was saying that that one can only yeah. enter that. Mm-hmm. when you've stepped outside of habitual mind that yeah. is organizing things in terms of got to get there mm-hmm. outcome and so forth you know that would have to that aspect of habitual mind would have to be deconstructed mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. but yeah like we can access that in multiple ways including meditation so even if we're not talking about that principle if we're if we do, in a sense, access the timeless in meditation, something like that is going on. We've deconstructed some of the habitual conditioning Mm -hmm. around outcome, time, Mm -hmm. self, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good to end with the timeless. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) so let me uh, offer a traditional dedication of of merit may may our time together and exploring in this way be beneficial for us, for those in our lives and may we offer the benefit also beyond the boundaries of our own lives, ultimately, to all beings, without exception. <laughs> 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 Thank you, and Thank you. until you. until next time. Come <laughs> back <laughs>